Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Our guest this week is Io Magwood, founder of Uprooting Inequity, her platform dedicated to sharing resources, curriculum, and instructional strategies for teaching about systemic racism and social justice through historical and civics education frameworks. From the moment this podcast begins, Io's deep knowledge of racism, history, and pedagogy is spellbinding. In our overly specialized and atomized academic world, her ability to find an intersection between these three domains set her apart from a lot of other folks doing the work. Understanding problems as complex as systemic racism require nuance, thorough research, and the ability to synthesize countless threads of information. Teaching others about it requires patience, vulnerability, and commitment. In our short time together, it's clear Io possesses all these traits, as well as being a great conversationalist in droves. It's a skill set and disposition our country need right now, as more and more people are waking up to the corrosive effects racism has on our systems and structures and on the individual lives of Black Americans. Luckily, Io's research and knowledge are perfectly suited to help educators and communities understand the roots of these issues and not just give them the surface. I can mostly see it now because after, in the wake of the George Floyd um, protests, I've, I've seen tons of um, people who are uh, newly interested in the topic, um, lots of discussion about it, and I have been amazed at how unprotective 90% of these conversations are, and from what I can see, I mean, aside from the obvious you know, ideological differences, uh, you know, name calling, uh, et cetera. Aside from that, what I saw was a major factor was a complete lack of understanding of the history of racism. So either they just, they were missing really important things that had happened that would help explain things today, or they, in other cases, they had tons of myths and misconceptions, which made it even worse. This episode was one of my favorites so far, as Io is as passionate as she is knowledgeable. She isn't afraid to model vulnerability, and she knows how to frame controversial issues in a way that lead to productive, growth-inducing conversation. Overall, her message is pertinent and clear. To truly end inequity, we must uproot it at its source. To do that, we must understand its history. Our guest today is Io Magwood, founder of Uprooting Inequity, which provides families, educators, and schools with workshops and curriculum design focused on anti-racist education and history. Welcome, Io. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to the podcast. I'm very excited to uh, to join. We're really excited to chat with you. So can you, can you uh, just start off by talking to us a little bit about your sort of mission and vision for Uprooting Inequity? Yep. So I wanted to help spread and share my years of, uh, of uh, experimenting and innovating and trying and failing and uh, stepping in the doo-doo and uh, fixing it up and <laughs> finding new ways and uh, experimenting with teaching about um, teaching an anti-racist curriculum, particularly um, uh, uh, racism in history within a U.S. history standard, U.S. history class. I've also taught about um, racism using ArcGIS mapping classes, um, 
but yeah, I just, uh, you know, I wanted to share the, the products and uh, results of all my hard work. Somebody should, uh, I want to, because there's a lot of renewed interest in, um, new interest in, in teaching about racism and teaching about our history of racism. And um, I'm finding that a lot of people are searching for answers and I wouldn't want them to start from, from uh, square one like I did. So I'm, I'm happy to share what I've learned the hard way with everybody else. That's right. Uh, so I, Io and I know each other from years and years ago. Io's taught me a lot. Uh, I was thinking, reflecting on, on when we met Io and uh, we were on a social studies department team together. And uh, just a tiny thing about sort of cultural sensitivity. I had, I had taught previously in a private school in, in New Orleans and, you know, I was sort of nervous about my age. And so I would, I would refer to the parents by their first names and say, this is Julie Stern. At the time, I was Julie Harris. Um, and so we were, we were working together in Washington, D.C. And I heard me like calling some parents sort of the, before the, the first few days of school. And you and I had known each other. You probably don't even remember this story. No, I don't. You and I, you and I knew, knew each other for like a day. And you just said, uh, Julie, and I was kind of technically your department chair. So like the bravery that it must have taken for you to do this, you're like, you refer to these moms by their last names um, when you're calling them. And I was just like, oh gosh, that's so true. I should have thought about it. It's just like a tiny sort of cultural shift um, that you taught me. And you just, you just have been uh, just somebody who's taught me so, that's just a tiny anecdote, but so many different things. Um, and so I just want to say, I vouch for her materials. Uh, we were social studies teachers together uh, and she's created just incredible, incredible, uh, mostly PowerPoint decks, I would say. I mean, would you say they're, they're mostly in slides, um, just visuals of, of, racist policies and not only racist policies, but what kids can do about it. Um, and so do, do you bring that element? That's sort of my, my, my wondering, do you bring the element of what people can do about it to your, to your curriculum work? Um, well, first of all, I want to say, yes, I do have a lot of diagrams because I found that um, a lot of kids uh, see, understand and, and things visually a lot better than when they hear things. In fact, that was, I realized that at Chavez, is that I, I talk, you know, I'm a verbal person. So I would talk and talk. And then um, I remember one specific situation where the kids were having trouble understanding cause and impact. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, cause and impact because cause sounds like because. And I talked and talked and talked for like 15 minutes. And the next day they still didn't get it. And so then I quickly drew a quick diagram on the board. And they were like, oh, why didn't you say that in the first place? And they never forgot it again. And I was like, oh, wait, oh. And so then I, that's when I started using diagrams more and more and more. I realized that there's a lot of visual learners and that you could quickly, especially like big concepts, big relationships, um, could really be expressed much better um, in a visually rather than um, than verbally, and then in or you know in words either written or spo uh, or spoken. So that's what got me to. I, I just found that I got so much more success out of the visual thing. But I also have tons of lessons to go along with those visuals. It's um, it's a combination of visuals, data, and then and lessons and uh, approaches. So um, and strategies. So it's a combination of that. Of course. I can only share the diagrams, you know, uh, so you'd only see those. But I wanted to acknowledge that uh, just like you say I've um, influenced you, um, I, as I was telling you earlier, is that my approach, I, when I was at Chavez, um, you and Krista really taught me so much about both civics-based education and concept-based education. 
And so when I went to, I went to my new school and started teaching U.S. Uh, history and found that, of course, racism was devoid of there. And I, was, I, I tried to figure out how to teach about racism. And I was shocked that there really was no guide anywhere, not just in the school, anywhere. Nobody apparently knew. There was no, there was no, nothing written on it. There's no journal articles, there's no strategies, nothing written on how to discuss race in the classroom. So I was really inventing the wheel by myself. But what I fell back on was the civics-based education and the concept-based education. I found that those were actually perfect uh, foundation that they I could use those adapt them I could adapt it combine with different things and that allowed me to teach in about racism in the classroom because of course it's very difficult it's very you know you got to balance so many things you know so like for example you want to uh, include ide uh, conservative ideologies in the classroom of course obviously you want you want to include all ideologies in the classroom so then I, I found that um, with uh, Diana Hess and um, Paula McAvoy, so they have, you know, the teaching discussing uh, uh, controversial issues in the, in the classroom, they never mentioned race. And I found that you could not directly apply their principles in the classroom. It would not work because mm. of this issue. But I noticed that in another chapter, they talked about um, uh, empirical versus political questions, and they talked about open versus closed questions. So with empirical is there is a discoverable answer to this question. Uh, political means there is never going to be uh, a answer to this. Um, informed, smart people are going to disagree on this question based on their ideology or whatever. Um, open means it's still up for you know debate. Closed means uh, the science, social scientists who are experts on this issue have come, the vast majority of them agree on this conclusion. So, and so they suggest we don't discuss closed um, issues in the classroom. We don't discuss whether the Holocaust existed. We, it, it, we do not discuss whether vaccines create autism, you know, because these scientists have, there's a discoverable answer and it's been discovered. So then I talked to a uh, conservative um, Republican, some Republic, conservative black Republican friends that I met, that I met at Chavez. Um, and uh, so after talking to them, I figured out a, like a, most black Americans I'm sorry, Black Republicans, Black conservatives believe that racism exists. They're like, duh, that, you know, of course it exists. All, look at all the data because it's a composed empirical question. However, because of their ideology, it, because of their beliefs in the proper role of government, they do not believe that the government is the right, uh, the right you know, person to address um, racism. So if you ask them about affirmative action, they would not have the same answers as, uh, uh, as a liberal. So, so then that's when I discovered, okay, so no, we are not the, so I would, I would talk about it openly. I would say, okay, we're going to talk about race. So, you know, I, I showed them, I explained them about, you know, empirical, political, uh, open clothes. I give them examples. So I said, whether systemic racism exists or not is a close, is it's an empirical question and it's closed. Here's the evidence, here's the research. And before that, we would have looked at the data, cold hard data, I believe very strongly in cold hard data. We would spend an entire day looking at data on systemic racism. I do not tell you that systemic racism exists. You can look at the data and come to your own conclusions. By the end of the, the period, and it's a, I do tell them though it's an empirical question. And the data, they're like, well, it's pretty clear that systemic racism exists. 
Because I, as a black teacher, cannot go in there and tell white kids that systemic racism exists. I will get told that I have a, an agenda. I have a liberal agenda and I have a black agenda. So educate it inside yourself. So then the next day we say, okay, so it's clear that, that systemic racism is a closed empirical question. So we're not going to discuss that. That is not going to come up in the classroom. It is it's resolved, period, move on. However, the question of what to do about systemic racism is an open political question. And we are going to discuss that. And so in that way, you open the door for, you invite and embrace uh, all ideologies. Mm -hmm. No one's going to open their mouth and say something racist. Mm. You ex mm. basically, it's like you're, you're skimming off the racism. That's, it's just so fascinating. It sounds like you also taught your students those words. So that, that just a, a little bit of a history of that, when you were referring to all of that, that was after our time together. Um, yes. and, and where you came and where you were teaching in a much more diverse setting. Uh, well, I guess it's all relative, but you were teaching in a very different setting than Chavez. Um, mm -hmm. And so you were teaching more predominantly in a pre predominantly white school, correct? Uh, upper class. And so that's where I think you, you also, you know, I think maybe you're thinking about stepping in the doo-doo. Um, maybe you meant uh, there as well. I mean, it's true. You know, I, I, I interpret that as just mistakes that we make when we're, when we're, we're trying something new, we're trying something very sensitive. It's a very sensitive topic. Um, and so just sort of some lessons learned. I love that you're sort of like categori categorizing types of questions. Um, and so we always ask our guests, you, you, you already sort of jumped into these in that first and answering that first question, you already jumped into your three words. So we always, just our listeners know this, we always ask our, you know, if you're thinking about what you do for anti-racism education and, and, and the history of racism, especially in the United States, um, do you mind sharing with, you, with our guests, with our listeners, I should say, uh, what your three terms are, or do you want me to say them out loud? Go ahead. Um, so, so Io came up with deliberative democracy as number one, and number two is history. Um, and number three is cold, hard data, which is what we already sort of talked about. Um, so let's start with, let's take it from deliberative democracy. What, what is that? First of all, what does that mean? So a deliberative democracy is a democracy where people aren't trying to compete, but rather are trying to, like, uh, they're trying to uh, identify and understand different perspectives and points of view and, and not trying to win over an argument, not that it's, it's contrasted to debate. They're not trying to win or convince the other person of their view. Rather, the objective is to understand everyone's point uh, or the main stakeholders' points of view so that you can come up with, you can uh, design solutions that um, fix the problem and, and uh, take the country forward um, as opposed to, and this is, it's, I, I would get a lot of pushback because I, in, in private schools these days, and I think also in many schools, you know, they teach debates. They teach how do you win an argument? How do you convince the others? You know, even, like, even when you write an essay, uh, um, you know, argumentative essay, you are trying to convince the others. Even when you use the counter uh, point, it's just so that you can destroy it. You know, so, um, so it takes a lot to... To, to change the kids' mindset. I'm like, we're not gonna do a single debate. We're doing deliberations and it's, and it's not just the deliberations we engaged in, but our whole approach to issues. 
And I found that that was absolutely, it's, it's helpful with everything, of course, but it's absolutely essential to discussing race um, because it just completely changes your mindset to there's one answer and I have it to, to hey, you know, different people may have different perspectives on race. And it's important that we understand all the major stakeholders' perspectives so that we can go forward and we can make the nation better. So um, I, one way that I did that is on the very first day of school, I would also always do a class simulation of the old Indian parable of the blind men and the elephant. So I, I, um, the art department, I would steal this, this big clunky bear sculpture from the art department, it was all beat up. I'd hide it underneath my desk, ask for a couple of volunteers, I would blindfold them, and then um, I would, in their hands, I would, on open hands, I would place one part of the elephant, very, I'm sorry, the bear, different parts of it. Audience could see, but, you know, they were sworn, sworn to secrecy. I would ask them to describe it, and then, then they had to get together and describe the bear, of course, they could not. I would ask the kids why they could not. So they started mm -hmm. to get the idea, but then I would show a series of maps and graphs. So I showed a racial dot map, map of the Washington, D.C. area. You might familiar And especially with Washington, D.C. is, if for our listeners who are not, Washington, D.C. is extraordinarily racially divided. I mean, it's, it's jaw-dropping. Actually, keep going, I hate to say it, but I've looked mm -hmm. at some for, most cities are. It's really, uh -huh, I, indeed. Yeah, mm -hmm. most cities are, have stark racial mm -hmm. segregation. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we, and then I show a map of economic uh, segregation. Um, and then, and then we look at political ideological segregation and the maps show that we are, we all live in very, very distinct areas. We live in areas that are very homogenous racially, economically, and politically ideologically. Um, so then I ask them, what do these maps have to do with the bear? And they get it. They're like, oh, because we're so segregated, we only see one part of the bear. We only see one part of DC. Our, our perspective is very limited and it's not all, it's only of our neighborhood. And in order to understand the entire bear, to understand all of DC, we have to talk to the people who touched the other part of the bear or who lived in the other, who, or who live in other parts. And I, I create a poster of that elephant with the six men around it and I put it on the wall and the kids refer to it all year long. They'll check each other. You know, when they'll be in discussion and somebody starts to, they'll be checked, oh, the elephant, the elephant, the elephant, the elephant. Oh, you don't have the other side of the elephant. You know, they will, they don't even have to do it anymore. They check each other. And in fact, I've had alum who contacted me several years later and said, you know what the thing that influenced me most about your class? is I always remember other, you to look for other perspectives. And I remember not to generalize my own perspective because I realize it may not be universal. So, that's an, so that really helps um, to set the, you know, to set the classroom. So it's not just the diagrams, it's not just the data, but you know, it's also this whole approach. And by the way, it's a perfect parallel to history, the history teachers, because in the history classroom, history teachers try to teach students how to do history by looking at different primary sources, um, assessing them and checking them against each other in order to create a narrative, a historical narrative that, so it's the same exact, it's, it's the parallel. 
So in order to, to construct a, uh, a narrative of these present day issues, they have to, they have to identify, assess, and check against each other all these competing narratives in the present day, mm -hmm. except for the, the difference is that they also, that they're, in his, they're not a historian, they also come from one of those perspectives. So they have to be able to, to mm -hmm. you know, pull themselves away. Check your own biases. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's an excellent intro to any history class. I think it's, that's really wonderful. And Trevor and I are really into metaphors and, and meta metaphorical sort of analogies. Uh, and so that it was a bear instead of an elephant is poetic because I mean, you know, racism is a bear of a problem. And, and it's just something, I mean, that, that I just love uh, that it just happened to be a bear instead of an elephant that your, your art department had um, is, is, is beautiful right there. Um, but that's excellent. I think you already, you've shared something I think our listeners can take away immediately and use in their classroom. So I've used that visual before, but I've never, I said, wait, you blindfolded your students and actually did the thing. Um, it's amazing and so great to say why we have to listen to people whose points of views are different from our own. That's something that Trevor, I know you shared, you're, I'm sure I'll just shut up and let you talk because Trevor's always talking about how we are in these echo chambers. No, I, I, uh, I am, I'm loving this. I, I've done the um, uh, Blind Men and the Elephant parable as well. I've never thought to actually find a creature to do it. That's <laughs> fantastic. And, and one of, that's one of my, my big things, especially looking on social media is, there's a real lack of sort of epistemic humility. Um, we live in a, in a world and in a time that is so infinitely complex with so many overlapping systems. And everybody is very sure that their approach, their perspective is the way, the truth and the light. And you, I feel like it's very difficult to actually solve problems if you aren't willing to step outside um, one lens or frame for viewing those problems. And um, have a little bit of, of curiosity. I don't want it to be trite, but almost curiosity of being like, I'm much more interested in finding the solution than I am scoring importance for my ideological or epistemic team, because I care about changing and fixing these things more than I do being right. So can you talk about how, um, I guess you, that's an that's a awesome way to kick things off, but how do you help this, uh, your students or the people that you're working with and educators sort of face um, their ideological preference or bias and be willing to step outside of it because I'm, I'm sure that's difficult because it's just not really something that's in our um, I don't know like our social discourse right now is so fragmented and antagonistic so how do you break through all that um one thing is it, the, the actual that barracks I, I, I swear it is extremely effective I, and I'll give you an example at the end of our unit on uh, I do a unit I start the year with a six-week unit on uh, racial inequity uh, political polarization and economic inequity, how they're all increasing. And we look at the all, basically it's, um, it's my substitute 1950s to the present unit. So I do it first. And then at the end of the unit, we scroll back to the colonial period. And I found, by the way, that engagement and uh, in connections wrote just like increased drastically mm. they were able to make connections and say oh that's you know they were and and they were much more engaged because i taught the non-ap kids and they sometimes they're not so crazy mm. about history and that really mm. helped um but anyhow mm. so at the end of that unit i would always have a parent teacher uh i'm sorry uh, a parent child uh discussion evening it was annual every single year we did it so all the parents are invited all the kids are invited kids have to participate unless they have a um, an excuse from the parent. We divide up the kids and the parents about half and half. 
in about five or six different classrooms, uh, adjacent classrooms. It was an entire 10th grade because uh, it was a required U.S. history class. Um, so, and they had questions and they sent the, the, the parents ahead of time some of the texts that the kids were reading so that they were familiar and plus the questions. Questions were open-ended um, and trying and, and no questions about the political candidates. You know, we're, we're, we're discussing the underlying political and economic and social issues. But inevitably, every single year, some of the parents would go off on a rant about one candidate or the other. And every single year, the students in the class would turn to the parents and say, <clears throat> we are here to understand each other's perspectives. Like the elephant and the first parent did not know what the elephant was. <laughs> oh, I love that the kids but are doing that. The kids would all, every single time without fail, they would curb in the parents and say, no, no, no that, that's not what we do here. Um, so, and in fact, one of the parents wrote the headmaster and, and, and described that because it's, it was so ingrained. We did, but we did a little by little, of course, you know, we were just, you know how classroom culture, you ingrain it little by little. But here's another, um, and then plus, like I said, that, that way that I did it with cutting out the racist, allowing the political um, ideology while cutting out the racism, that also helped create an open space, but with safe at the same time. And then another thing that I did was to um, to put myself on the line too. I, when I said doo-doo, one of the earlier years, I started talking about race, and all of a sudden I looked around and I realized almost all the white kids had shut down. I could see it in their faces, and, there, and normally it was a very extremely participatory class, and there was dead silence, and I could see discomfort, and I was like, Arr! okay. <laughs> so I went home and refought it. And then the next day I said, we're going to do a redo. You know, I was like, I saw what happened. You know, we're going to, uh, we're going to restart. So I, um, I handed out an article on how we all are racist. We all have implicit biases. They're natural. They're universal. First of all, you know, just human cognitive biases. And then on top of it, we're all uh, victims of socialization. You know, we're all socialized our lives. You know, what does it mean to be a girl or a boy? What does it mean to be a good student? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean, you know, along with all of that, there's all of this, what does it mean to be white and black? And so, and I say, you know, it's, it's part of our, and, and because we live in a diverse society and we know this, then it is our job as humans, as citizens, to constantly be working on those, to acknowledge them openly and to constantly be aware of them. And I said, it's a never ending journey. It's not like you, you take a, a racial work, you know, awareness workshop. And then the next day you say, check, I am now woke I'm healed. And racially, <laughs> you know, aware, check got that off my list. I said, it is a, I said, I am 50. I don't know whatever, how old I was at that time. I am still working on it. And then I even shared, I said, you know what? I shared this curriculum with a colleague of mine here, Murray, and she's Chinese American, and the the I, I shared the mask we wear, um, which has mm -hmm. a, a a Christian, you know, thing. And I said, and she was not happy, and she felt, mm. you know, that it was insensitive, and mm. so I I felt a little bit bad. I ducked, but mm -hmm. I dusted myself off. I did mm -hmm. a little research, and I went back to her, and I apologized, and I said, you know, I did what about mm -hmm. that, and you know, you're right, and uh, I won't make that mistake again. And I said, mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm 50 something, yeah. you know, I'm still making 
That's amazing. It's amazing for, for you to show that, that humility. We've talked about that with several of our guests that just as school leaders, um, uh, teacher trainers like, like Trevor and I, that it's imperative to say, you know, I always try to say in my workshops, I used to think, now I think, or here's a mistake I made. Uh, don't do this, what I did. Um, and yeah, and in this space, you are going to make mistakes. Um, I, can, I could right now, I'm not going to, unless, you know, I wish we had like some callers, a call, caller call in and tell me, Julie, share, <laughs> share, your, share your seven mistakes. But I shared one of them of calling the parents home and, and calling them by their first names. But I, I have some worse ones from Chavez. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes. Um, and so I appreciate that. And it reminded me too of, of, I love the Foundation for Critical Thinking you and I worked with their materials as well, um, says basically all humans are, are naturally, you know, socio-ethno-centric, like, and, and, and we, ourselves, like, we, we think we are right. Um, we think our experience is the right way. Uh, that is like a natural tendency, and so you have to acknowledge that, um, and I think that's what, that's the power of, of social studies in, in English language arts, if we do it well, um, then we help our students to sort of recognize that. So I love that you shared your own mistakes, your own journey um, with your students. I think that's enormous. And that it's not, it's, I mean, everything that you just said about anti-racism, I think is true of all learning. It's never over. We all want our kids to be lifelong learners. We all want our kids to be continuously sort of uh, questioning what they understand, refining their, their thinking. Um, and so I think I, it's especially true when it comes to race, but I think it's true of a lot of different things. It was especially critical for me to do that as a black teacher mm -hmm. with a predominantly mm -hmm. white classroom, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I believe they felt they would be judged um, mm -hmm. and condemned as bad people, as racist. And, and I was, I said, look, I am not here to judge you because we would have to judge me too. You know, we'd have to judge everybody and nobody would come out clean. You know, I said, um, I said, plus you're still students. I said, the important thing is not whether you have biases or not, because guess what? I said, the important thing, work on them. Some people just choose to ignore them. And other people choose to educate themselves and work on them. So that, that's, you know, it's not whether you're good or bad racist or not racist. It's whether you are willing to constantly for your entire life to work on help understanding different people better. I said, you know what? I used to live in Belgium and I hated it because it was so homogenous. I said, at least it perceived to be for me. I said, when I came home, it, I loved the Dorsey so much. I, I renewed my commitment to under, better understanding. I said, I'm going to, every single day, every single week, I'm going to try to reach out and better understand people of different identities and different backgrounds, because that is a price I gladly pay for living in this extremely diverse society. And it is never finished. But once I had put it like that, that really helped. And so it's a, what do you call it? It's um me out what they used to call like uh, like in math you either know it or you don't know whether you or whether you can grow oh yeah growth mindset is that what you mean a fixed mindset versus a exactly. growth mindset <laughs> it's basically yeah. a growth mm -hmm. mindset versus mm -hmm. a fixed mindset mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i'm either racist or not right. versus right. i am going we all have biases so mm -hmm. let's all work on and we can do that in two ways we can educate ourselves like we're learning in this classroom and we can 
um, uh, give and take perspectives. There's tons mm -hmm. of research that says one of the best ways to reduce bias uh, and understand others is to give and take perspectives. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. feeds in again to the deliberative democracy and the elephant. Mm -hmm. Then they become mm -hmm. eager to better understand the perspectives of others so that they can be a better person and reduce their biases. Does that answer your question? Yes, gorgeous, gorgeous answer. Uh, I and that's that's incredible. And then you're you're reminding me too of uh, when I did my master's degree. I had to do um, just sort of any sort of quantitative uh, project, and so I decided to um, survey teachers in affluent schools and survey teachers in for where where the the students were largely low low socioeconomic status. And of course, that also went along by and large racial lines. And so I gave a, a, a ton of surveys to teachers in Fairfax County in, in higher income schools where the students are predominantly white and a ton of teachers in DC public schools um, where the students are, are predominantly black. And I asked them about civic behaviors. I don't know if I ever shared this story with you, Io, um, but it was right before I met you that I did this, this research. Um, and so I just gave them certain civic behaviors, like do you promote uh, students sort of speaking up for their, their opinion and their point of view? Do you promote students listening and taking in um, you know, other people's perspectives? And um, I sort of, I, I categorize them based on like, you know, do you advocate for yourself versus you know, more participatory? Do you listen and sort of take in ideas? And, I couldn't, I, shocking, shocking. It was a survey of convenience. It was teachers that I knew that uh, I gave it to them. They kind of like passed it out at the, in the faculty uh, mailboxes and just whatever ones filled it out and turned it back into them. So it was not, you know, uh, a, a true random sample, but 100% of the teachers in Fairfax County did more participatory, I mean, more, excuse me, sort of advocacy, like I am going to tell you my opinion and I'm going to try and, and make you see my point of view. And 100% of the teachers in DC public schools did more wow. uh, participatory, which was I, I listen. So we, were, we are literally training our, our, uh, our affluent kids to advocate for their point of view and our lower income kids to listen. That um, is so fascinating. I, just, I did yeah. not, either. I didn't yeah. know or I didn't remember. Yeah, I don't think but, I really uh, talked much about it, but because we were always so busy doing all kinds of stuff. But um, but yeah, it's it, it, what you said is just so true um, that we we that that upper income. I'm my, I'm going to include myself in that. And middle to upper income parents would teach our kids to advocate for themselves. Um, and it's it's definitely something that I love the idea that we would teach our kids that the goal is understanding. The goal is to actually seek out points of view that are different from your own. I mean, what a different society we would be in if, if that was universal across schools. And that's the, the idea of, teach, yeah. and that's the idea of a deliberative democracy. Mm -hmm. and, and again, that was, was explicit. That was the explicit goal you know, set out at the beginning of the year that the kids said, yeah, that makes more sense. So, uh, and along those lines, I also um, set up a meet up between Chavez and Murray students. So Chavez mm -hmm. is um, a, a, a charter school where we, we were at, I'm just describing for the audience, um, low income, it's something like uh, 78, 80%, I think, below the poverty line, or title mm -hmm. uh, one, um, about 75% or 80% black and the rest Latino. Um, and Murray is one of the most elite private white schools in, in DC. So we did some, uh, over the year, we did do some smaller exchanges between um, a leadership group in both uh, volunteers in each class where we would interact with each other. Like once we met up with the groups in um, 
the, the portrait gallery, you know, in the atrium, and they uh, drew pictures of their um, neighborhoods, and then they shared them with each other. And then wow. you can imagine, you know, wow. you can imagine the distinct mm-hmm. difference. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, it was like, you know, the mansions versus, yeah, and this is where I can't get any work done, because the prostitutes always do their business under my window, and this is the murder and the police car, you know. But it was mm-hmm. fascinating, because the kids who had already met a couple of times over the, you know, they met like every couple of months. But when they describe, when the kid would finish describing it, the kids would discuss it, and whenever they they kept, they would never mention the differences. They would immediately talk about all the similarities, and sometimes they had to really reach for it, but somehow <laughs> they could only see that it was fascinating, and it really allowed them to bond, you know. Um, but that was like a, a smaller group, and then at the end of the year, we um, we had a meeting with all the kids. It was um, the entire tenth grade and Ray plus one class of 11th graders and the entire 11th grade at Chavez. So the mm-hmm. entire campus was full and we had them in little groups, half and half with about eight kids in each group. And they um, had a combination of um, fun activities and you know, playing and stuff and discussion. And so um, it was very helpful for the kids. And the same thing, they were like, oh, they're actually not that very different from us. They're the same mm-hmm. actually. You know? mm-hmm. The kids were always shocked to see you know, the similarities, but, mm. but again, that was the, that was another iteration of me trying to help the kids give and take perspective. That was mm. a different um, aspect. Excellent. And also the parent, the parent students um, a discussion evening. That's also another example of giving and taking mm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, gener- generational. Yeah. Generational. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the, some of the black parents uh, could give different perspectives mm. than the black mm. different mm. things came up that students mm. might not have brought up in class and and i think it's it's really important to give space to talk about both the more universal and the more particular uh it's it's really important i think to, to highlight ways in which you know our experiences are different based on material and corporeal, uh, corporeal differences um but also how you know our humanity in some way creates a shared space for us to build a sense of solidarity that can lead to like having a healthy community. So mm-hmm. I, it's, it's very cool to, to hear that students are, are actively seeking out ways that they can find, um, I guess, similarity, um, even though it might mm-hmm. seem like there wouldn't be much. Um, however, thinking about your second concept, history, um, there have been systems and structures that were created and continue today that make it uh, much more different, uh, difficult to see those um, shared similarities um, and also creates a lot more um, disparity based on class, race, gender, et cetera. So could you talk a little bit about the role of helping students understand the history of those differences? I, I love how you begin your year by looking at the now and then having kids sort of, okay, you here's a sort of picture of what's happened now. Now let's go back in time and see how these um, sort of norms and precedents uh, develop. So could you just talk to us a little bit about the role of history and this uh, journey to understand the, the current uh, events we have now? I can mostly see it now because after in the wake of the George Floyd um, protests, I've, I've seen tons of um, people who are uh, newly interested in the topic, um, lots of discussion about it, and I have been amazed at how unprotective 90% of these conversations are, mm-hmm. and from what I can see, 
I mean, aside from the obvious, you know, ideological differences, uh, you know, name calling, uh, et cetera, aside from that, what I saw was a major factor was a complete lack of understanding of the history of racism. So either they just, they were missing really important things that had happened that would help explain things today, or they, in other cases, they had tons of myths and misconceptions, which made it even worse. Um, and I could see it on all levels, even sometimes educators, because our, our history books don't cover this. Our, you know, our, our, our history books just skim over like one paragraph for, you know, for, and a lot of stuff is not mentioned. And, and I just got so frustrated. I was like, I kept yelling into all the Facebook groups saying, I wasn't participating in the conversations, but I'm like, y'all need a history class. Y'all need to know about <laughs> history of racism. And then I thought to myself, wait a second. I have years of experience. I, I've spent, because it's not in the textbooks, I had to teach myself. I spent years looking back, you know, doing the research, reading journal articles, because it's not in the textbook. I've read journal articles. I, you know, I've looked at primary sources. I, uh, you know, I spent tons of time researching it and then also, you know, teaching it. Um, and like, you know, you do your iterations. The first time doesn't go so great. You know, you adjust, you adjust, modify. And, you know, so I had like, five years of iterations of, you know, teaching this. So I was like, I need to share this because it, I don't want everybody else starting from square one. So, um, and I've been, I, I, sh I shared a lot of stuff freely. And um, uh, I said, you know, this is my contribution to the movement. Um, I am too old to be out there in the protests and the marches. So this is my contribution to the movement. This is my contribution to helping the place be a racially better place is I can share all the, the research, I, the, you know, the research, the ideas, the strategies, the experiences, the iterations, I, materials, lessons, you know, I can share all of that with others so that they're not starting from square one. So I've been doing a series of, of workshops. I have, I, I identified seven of the biggest periods uh, chronologically of of uh, the history of racism in the United States, the ones that I thought had the most, um, the most helpful for understanding race today. The ones like, no, you cannot have a discussion on race unless you know these things, you know? Uh, so there's uh, the origins of slavery, you know, the Jim Crow era, the forced, uh, the forced labor, you know, there's about seven different, uh, and I'm, uh, giving them online and I have them broken down to the different audiences. So I have one that's for educators who I, I will go a little bit faster because I assume they know a little bit, uh, they, know, they may not know details about there, but they, you know, they know the overall history and then we spend more time on resources. You know, here's some lessons, here's some videos, here's some, this is how you could use this resource, this is how you could use this resource. I have another one for non-educator uh, adults, so people who are just trying to that say, "Wow, I need to learn about this," um, and um, and then another one for um, uh, one for middle school kids and their parents, and one for high school kids and their parents. It's geared for the kids, but the parents are have double duty. They are both discussion partners and they're deputized teacher aides, so um, to sort of help the lesson. And it's basically the same thing, but you know, just tweaked and modified to fit each audience. Um, and then I also created a separately, I created a set of diagrams, visual diagrams of, of a, a set of 12 diagrams that 
that summarize the history of racism in visual diagrams because I found when I was teaching kids, especially the non-AP kids, the AP kids I found were very verbal and they were able to read tons and tons of words and listen to tons of tons of words and they were able to sort of put it all together in their head. They could easily identify the big ideas versus the supporting details. They could easily make the connections and the relationships. The kids in the non-AP class weren't uh, often struggled to do that based on words. And so I found that we would use diagrams. I, sometimes I created diagrams and, and sh shared it with them. Other times we would create diagrams together. Like for instance, at the end of a unit, we would say, so how would we diagram uh, the unit? Everything we've learned, what are the main ideas and the main relationships? And, and we would Love diagram that. them on the board and create our own conceptual diagram. And the kids would use that to study with because it would help them. It was like a map or a visual outline. And then when they were studying, they could hook the details on, you know, this detail belongs to here. You know, they could locate where the details belong because otherwise oftentimes, you know, it becomes a big mass of details to memorize, you know, that, but they could, they could prioritize and, 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 and trace the relationships. And so I find that, uh, so I shared them freely on tons of Facebook groups and I'm getting just, I'm just getting tons of emails saying, you know, I've been trying to read that uh, uh, Kendi's uh, 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 stamp from the beginning and I've gotten like one third through it and I am so totally lost and your diagram, <laughs> and I don't have time and I have kids and a job. And they said, when I saw your diagram, it was like, it cut right through it. Like all of a sudden it became crystal clear. All of a sudden I was so, like, oh. Speaking of that, Io, could you share like an example of, uh, you know, some, some sort of piece of history that most people are not aware of. I know there's tons and that's what your whole workshops are. So I'm not, I'm not <laughs> trying to ask you to give an workshop, but like, is there one off the top of your head that, that uh, you, you find particularly compelling to share? Uh, do you mind if I share two? Sure, <laughs> so sure, sure. one is from the very beginning from my first class, the origins of racism it is most people assume that the way slavery was described in our history books was the way it always was. And mm -hmm. they also assume that racism, very deep ingrained racism, always existed. And mm -hmm. that is so untrue. The, uh, when we started the colonial era, they brought, um, they brought with them from England a class-based society, just like in Europe. And um, actually indentured servants were the main source of labor. And there were some black slaves, but it was a completely class-based society. So, so poor blacks and poor whites, they were working together on the same plantations. They were living together in the same facilities. They were drinking together, socializing together, running away together. There's so many wanted ads, runaway wanted ads for both my, my you know, my Kelly, the you know, white guy and uh, Billy, the black guy, they ran away together. Um, and they slept together and they had, uh, obviously it appears from the evidence that they had common law marriages together. Because you would see, for example, you know, Mary uh, White indentured servitude is in the courts for the third time in, in six years um, to have her indentiture uh, extended by another six to nine contracts. She's had yet another child. Every time a woman had a, ch a child, they could, the, the owner could, could extend the indentiture. But the important thing is that, and it didn't matter what the child was, but they would mention mulatto child. And then a year and a half later, another mulatto child. And a year and a half later, another mulatto child. Clearly, she's having a long-term relationship 
with a black man. So, um, so it was completely different. So race, it was class-based society instead of race relations. Slavery wasn't actually that much different from uh, in, in uh, servitude, white servitude. And um, blacks, uh, slaves could free them, uh, become free much easily. They could earn their freedom. It wasn't always permanent. And some of them became very successful and became landowners and even, and they even owned their own white indentured servants and black slaves. Um, but it was because of, it's a long story, but because of Bacon's Rebellion and some demographic shifts, um, the, the elite actually created racism and institutionalized slavery as we know it for economic and political reasons. And I find that the vast majority of people do not know this. And I think it has tons of implications for today. It just blows my mind. You know, we can think about, um, you know, what if we had a class-based society? And obviously it's possible, you know? It tells us that racism is not natural. Um, it, it, it shows us how, since the beginning of time, people have been using the divide and conquer between poor blacks and poor whites strategy. It is not new, you know? So many things, so many implications for today. And then the other one is during the post-World War II period, um, many people are just unaware that the United States government spent millions and millions and millions of billions of dollars on white affirmative action. So they basically created the white middle class before World War II, the middle class was tiny. You know, uh, two decades later, it's huge and all white. That happened by itself. Huge subsidies from the U.S. government that were that were exclusive to to whites. Um, and at the same, not only were blacks prohibited from receiving these the white affirmative action, but they were also the U.S. government did redlining and a bunch of other things that in that deliberately decreased their wealth. And so again, I don't think you can't have a conversation about affirmative action, of uh, black poverty, of uh, black white wealth, wealth gap. You can't discuss any of those without understanding, because that was not long, that long time ago. Those were people's grandparents. And those grandparents with those houses that they got for almost free or for, you know, very cheap, they were used to, to, um, to, to get to take out loans, college loans, um, and they were used and they were passed down in inheritances to help people pay for their 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 first uh, payment for down payment for houses, to pay for preschool, to pay for you know private school, et cetera, et cetera. Huge implications because that, that didn't disappear over time. You know, it was passed down. And also it also created um, the if you look at racial wealth gaps, uh, racial segregation today, the patterns are exactly the same. We live today in black and white in the same racial segregated patterns that fit exactly along the redlining um, lines that the U.S. government created in the 1990s. Can you can you explain that, Sarah? We've we've actually had um, somebody that you know, Sharon Brown, on our on our yeah. podcast who spoke about redlining before too. Um, but can you explain, just in case our listeners haven't didn't listen to that episode, which we encourage you to, um, if you're interested in this one, you should listen to our, our other one um, on equity and wellness and well being. But uh, can you explain to our listeners what redlining is? Sure. So again, the U.S. government wanted to create uh, a big, healthy uh, middle class. So um, they were they were allowing basically subsidized mortgages um, and they wanted to protect the these subsidized mortgages they didn't want it to you know throw the houses to lose value they wanted to protect their value you know that protect their investment but the way they decided to do that is they decided that black people um, just by being black 
we're going to not take care of the property and we're going to, um, that their values, property values of Blacks, not just Blacks, it was immigrants as well, um, uh, those were bad uh, financial investments. Mm. So they had maps that they, um, they had color coded. So green and blue were the best, you know, best financial investments. And then, uh, and red was the worst one. Red one was do not invest in this area. So mm. the, the, it was the actual government who created these maps and they strongly encouraged um, not just their own um, lending uh, and subsidies were given according to these banks, but they also um, in, often insisted the private lenders were also often required to follow them. So basically you cannot give any loans to um, people, anyone living in the red line. And it doesn't matter what your individual circumstances in, um, and including if you're white, you know, if you were in red line area, you cannot get a loan. Um, mm -hmm. And so, of course, every everyone who was white who lived in that redlined area said, shoot, I'm not going to do it. So they moved out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they would move out. Um, so the areas became even more, more segregated. Uh, even more segregated. And then, mm -hmm. of course, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. Because if you cannot get a loan, then you cannot mm -hmm. get a loan to expand your business. Yeah. You, can't, yeah. you can't fix up your house. You can't renovate your house. You can't blah 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 blah, and also you can't get a loan for um, for uh, for education. It becomes right. a self fulfilling prophecy. So those become you know, basically a ghetto. And then one the, of one of my favorite sort of adages is that it takes money to make money. You have to, you know, I think about that a lot as someone who's made a career for myself as an author and a consultant, which is which is not easy. And and of course, my parents helped me quite a bit. Um, not only not only financially, but with babysitting my children and think, just all of those those things that it takes. Um, and so it takes money to make money. And my grandmother used to say, uh, God rest her soul, I loved this. She would say in her Cajun accent, it's expensive to be poor. Um, yeah. And it's true. It's expensive to be poor. I mean, if you think about just even quantity, like if you, if you can only afford one roll of toilet paper, for example, it costs more than if you can afford per, per roll than if you can afford a 12 pack. Uh -huh. um, and so it, yeah, it, it definitely becomes the snowballing effect. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I feel like the conversation about poverty is missing from a lot of the debate right now. Like there's a lot of, uh, uh, rightly so, there's a lot of focus on race. Um, but I sort of, maybe as a social scientist, I don't know, I sort of just feel like if we don't include poverty in this conversation um, and just economics in this conversation, then what's going to be solved? Um, and, and so, you know, what you're going to get, what we're seeing, what I'm seeing just in my own, uh, from my own vantage point is that wealthier people of color, so middle to upper in income people of color are advancing because people are like, oh gosh, we need, we need to diversify. We need, you know, so like, hurry, hurry, let's get this person in there. And I, I know people, I know people who've received like four fellowships, like the same, the same dude right? Because he is a person of color. He received one fellowship and people are like, ah, oh, we need more people of color in this fellowship. There's another fellowship, another fellowship. Um, and I'm just thinking, what, what about those kids? Like those kids you and I taught at Chavez, like where's their fellowships or where, where's the, you know, their scholarships for college. I feel like that, that has to be a part of it. So I'm just curious from your perspective. Um, yeah, there, I have a couple things to say on that. One reason you might be hearing pushback from Blacks is that um, for many decades, uh, many moderates have been insisting that racism is not a issue, that it's only 
um, uh, it's only economic inequity. Mm -hmm. And that is a gross misunderstanding of the situation. Of First of no, all, I <laughs> listeners, I do not consider myself that. Yes. <laughs> no, no, I'm no, I'm just explaining. The confluence of racism and- Yeah, you need to both. Yeah. So, but what I'm saying is you may be getting a- Right, I, I, it, um, I get that, yeah. Uh, what do you call it, an automatic kick? You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, of course, a, a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Exactly, that's it. You may be getting <laughs> yeah. a knee-jerk reaction because mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the um, because race, it, it for many years, many people have tried to insist that it was only economic and of course those failed because of course race is also a fact mm -hmm. you really need to, to discuss both. Um, uh, so uh, that's one issue. The, the second issue is that I find that oftentimes uh, white organizations, uh, they want a black person um, that is technically black, but uh, looks and acts and is culturally white. Mm -hmm. um, so I find I have, um, I have a very, uh, I have a fairly easy job of, of, of finding jobs because I talk like a rich white girl as mm -hmm. I've been told many times in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I'm half white. I, um, I went to Ivy League schools. Um, I, 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 I pass culturally. Mm -hmm. I speak mm -hmm. the right way. I know how to. Um, I'm a little bit too outspoken for their, <laughs> for their mm -hmm. case. But in many other ways, um, I, and that's what they want, really. I, I remember right. I, for the school where I worked, I recommended an African-American colleague who is, just as or if not better than me and mm. she was not selected and i asked why and they said we don't think she's a good fit mm. so mm. her accent she she went to um hbcus and mm. she came from a low-income african-american community um mm. and uh the, she, she didn't have that white polish uh white color not even it's not even white it's um more specific than that it's like a uh, upper class wasp, you know, white culture and way of being and way of speaking and uh, et cetera. And I find that, um, especially certain areas like private schools, they really, 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 really want that. They want you yeah. to be technically black. I, I would say, I would say that's, um, I understand what you're saying in response to what I'm saying about economics, but that's kind yeah. of what I'm, what I'm saying is that like, yet yeah, the certain, certain people of color. And so it's, it also, it's like not even black, like, oh, okay, if we've got, this is what I mean, like it really coming to grips with our 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 history of slavery, um, and and I, I just feel like uh, lots of recent immigrants are able to move a lot faster. Lots of people of color who are not black are able to move a lot faster, and so it, it just seems to me like that we have that we have to add this element of sort of descendants of slavery um, and or um, economics in the confluence of race. It, it makes me think about what uh, one of our previous guests, Darren Cambridge, was talking about when he talks about this idea of how some of our more like modern neoliberal way of, of approaching diversity is, is kind of performative. Um, mm. We want the, uh, the signifier, the sign of being progressive, of having mm. diversity, but we aren't necessarily capable or willing to challenge some of those cultural or discursive norms to accommodate for real diversity. Mm -hmm. We want the the visual, mm -hmm. the representation of, you know, being a, a, a very progressive or a very, you know, diverse place. But when it comes to like actually making room to let other people different ways of knowing, thinking, being, talking, seeing the world, people are much less comfortable with that, especially when it might potentially affect their material condition.
it's really tricky because right now, like as you said, during you know everything happening with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, people are becoming more racially conscious than they were, but maybe not in a way that is actually productive in changing the material conditions of people or truly promoting diversity as much as it is, you know, getting um, likes on social media or um, the, the appearance of being um, diverse. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what um, like actual change affecting anti-racism activism looks like? Um, that is a topic that's true to my heart. And the, um, I wanna um, refer you to Katherine Hagerman she wrote, she's a sociologist who wrote a book called White Kids. Um, the book talks about uh, several different issues, but there's this one um, term that she coined within the book that I think is fascinating. It's called the conundrum of privilege. And she describes the, um, the how many, many liberal progressive uh, white uh, parents, uh, uh, wealthy ones, they um, claim to be very woke and they claim to have that for social justice to be extremely important. And they talk to their kids a lot about social justice and they want their school to have a, a lot of social justice programming and they pay for expensive trips for them to go to Tanzania and um, build latrines or houses. And yet they are not willing to do anything to stop themselves because while they're doing this all on the surface and going to their march, their actual day-to-day -day lives is producing systems of inequity that the intention that are taking away opportunities from other children. So there, there's this, you know, a paradigm whereas they they want to maximize their child's opportunities and maximize, which includes making their child a perfect child, a socially just child. But in order to do so, they're in they're they're living in these. Um, wealthy white segregated uh, communities that n are not just segregated purely because uh, low-income people can't afford them. They're actually going, taking efforts to do, in including exclusionary zoning and making other policies to keep others out of their neighborhood and their schools. The kids are going to segregated uh, private schools. They're going to living in segregated neighborhoods, which is directly feeding into the systems of inequity and racism. And yet they want to make sure that, you know, they're, they're paying for the kids to go to Tanzania and, you know, to be woke. Um, so it's, it, it's absolutely fascinating, you know, and the, the, and she points out the, she points out that, you know, you spent all this time into making your child socially just. What if you spent a fraction of those resources and effort into making a more socially just world or future for your child? Mm. You know, cause like, I love that phrasing. What, what good is it for your child to be, you know, to know all the social justice lingo? And if we continue the way we are today, the next, you know, in 30 years, that child is going to be living in a world that is even more actually, you know, and economically inequitable. What, what, what good is that? So she talks about that conundrum of, of privilege. Yeah, it's very difficult for kids to see or people understand that privilege is connected, white privilege is connected to, directly connected to um, anti-Black racism. They're, they're not separate. So many kids and people think, well, we work hard and we're, um, and we're smart and we work really hard for what we want. And plus we're blessed, we're fortunate, so we're wealthy. And on the other hand, on the other side of town, these people maybe have not worked as hard or maybe they're unlucky and they're, they are poor and uh, that, that's just completely separate. They do not see them as two sides of the same coin. 
they're two sides of the same symptom, of the same system. One would not exist without the other. And, and I, and I, and I want to step back and not judge because I, as a upper middle class black person, I also participate. I also am, uh, I have a lots of privilege and I also live and work and indirectly uh, participate and contribute and reproduce these systems of inequity from an economic point of view, right? We all do. Like even if you live in a diverse neighborhood, we still have a comfortable American and European lives that are dependent on, that would not be possible without child slave labor across the world, right? So oppression of any kind is directly related. It's the same, it's the other side of the coin. It's the same system as, as oppression. And whether that's white versus, you know, whether that's racial, whether that's economic, whether that's international, you can, whether that's LGBT, on and on and on. It's the reality and we have to decide how, we have to ask ourselves that question and we have to ask our students those questions and not in a accusatory way. These are philosophical, these are ethical questions, not philosophical, but ethical questions, difficult questions, but we mm -hmm. have to ask ourselves that. I'll just say, add it to that, that's really important in the classroom, especially in predominantly white or predominantly wealthy classrooms, it's just too easy for kids to see them as separate. Mm. Their privilege mm. as completely unconnected to oppression and they need to understand mm. that it's part of the same thing. Very difficult. Mm. I feel like, uh, you know, that phrasing of, do you, would you rather create a, you know, a socially just child versus would you rather create a more socially just world for your child to live in? Um, is That's gorgeous. Uh, we, we've got to, we've got to use that. Um, and, and of course, attribute it to you. Um, it's beautiful. No, no, it's and Catherine I, Hagerman. Oh, this is Catherine Hagerman. Um, and also, um, I think, I feel like you came full circle um, in that, you know, the, the goal, it's so hard. I have to speak personally, I have two kids. The goal is you, of course you want every opportunity for your kids, but the goal is not no longer, uh, you know, I want my kids to have a super successful life with, with this, with two cars, you know, the whole American dream thing. Like I want my kids to live meaningful lives and sort of coming back full circle to your original point, which is the goal is not to win. The goal is not to win life, you know, and, and therefore there are losers, but the goal is to, how can we better understand each other's perspectives? How can we sort of check our own biases? How can we seek understanding so that we can solve these really complex thorny issues that, that we face? Um, and I feel like it's going to take parents, hopefully this next generation of, of, of parents saying that's what we want for our kids. So more than fighting for my kid to have the best of everything, uh, I'm going to fight for the world to provide, you know, dignity for all for all um, as 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 the goal. <laughs> and this relates back to what we started the conversation with as well, which is the idea that you know this uh, this sort of debate, competition, antagonistic way of relating to one another has become so baked into how we view things that it's really hard for a lot of people to um, not see other people getting a piece of the pie as them giving up something. Um, mm. It's, mm. I, th I just think that the way that we are used to relating to one another just because of all the overlapping systems and history is, is, has become very transactional um, and it's become hyper-competitive. Um, and when that happens, the idea of, you know, giving up privilege is terrifying to people because it feels like something that is um, a challenge. And I, I think 
I, what you've sort of put forth that I think is really important to reflect on, and I'm, I'm going to reflect on this myself, is how much more difficult it is to really sit and think about what your privilege is and how it affects other people is so much more meaningful and powerful than just acknowledging that you have white privilege, reading a book and then being like, well, guess I uh, check that off. I'm now an anti-racist. Excellent. <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it is a lifelong journey. And this was a conversation we had, I believe with uh, Catherine St. Villier Hill. Was that, was that mm-hmm. right, Julie? Where mm-hmm. she talked about yeah, being Kathleen, in, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in constant dialogue with ourselves and our identity is just so important. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you bringing the, bringing that perspective to the episode today. It's fantastic. Thank you. I yeah, had a great so, time. Thanks for inviting me. Just real quick, uh, before we say goodbye, I want people to know that where they can find you. So if they that you're on Twitter, um, it's uh, uprooting inequity. Um, we didn't even have time to talk about that. It's gorgeous. But the idea of like uprooting inequity because it is deep um, is beautiful. So on Twitter, uprooting inequity. Um, um, actually, what, it's uh, uprooting inequity. <laughs> it ends with the I. Um, yes, yes. Um, but my but if website, they search uprooting inequity, they can. Find yeah, that's true. And then the IG is also uprooting inequity, and my website and Facebook are also uprooting inequity. Yes, that's what I wanted to get at. Is that I'm I'm frustrated that conversations and discussions about race are very superficial, and we need to get mm-hmm. to the history, yes. the mm-hmm. root causes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we need to tap. It's it's like an iceberg. You know, the tip mm-hmm. of the iceberg. Indeed. You know, Indeed. the George Floyd protests are the tip of the iceberg, and. The iceberg goes really deep inside and you just cannot discuss the top without going down to the roots and mm-hmm. looking at the history and the data and implicit by, um, you know, cognitive biases and all of that. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Io. Thank you for your work. Thank you for hopping on with us. Um, it was a super enlightening conversation. Um, thank you for doing the real hard work. I mean, you are so needed. So thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transverse.